And uh, we'll begin, as always, with a word of prayer. It's always good to see you guys and always grateful to uh, just be able to dive into God's Word and, and uh, study it together uh, and just encourage one another to be equipped. That's the goal of this hour, is to be able to equip ourselves for ministry and for whatever God has for us in our ministries in the church, and especially, specifically, to equip ourselves for reading His Word. So let's just begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful for um, the privilege of studying your word and growing in truth in the church. And the relationships that exist in this room are the very, the very atmosphere, the very uh, dynamic, the very culture where we need to be learning how to interpret, where we need to be growing in our ability to read, uh, understand, apply, receive, embrace, and submit to your word. And so, Lord, we, we really are coming this morning needy. We are coming, um, Lord, just as sinners who uh, are applying to you right now, even in this prayer, for grace. We are looking to you for, for help, for clarity, for encouragement, and we, we want to have deeper and deeper and deeper conviction. Uh, we, want to, uh, we want to see our minds more renewed. Our, our desire, um, Lord, is to be more fully conformed into the image of your Son. And Lord, that requires proper understanding of your Word. And so, in light of what's at stake, Lord, we we want to just press you in a very reverent way. We want to press you, Father. Lord, won't you be gracious to us and won't you equip us to be better readers of your word? Won't you deepen our conviction? Won't you increase our confidence in your ability to speak and in our understanding of how to make sense of what you have said? And uh, we know that you will, Lord, because you're such a gracious God. So we're about to Enjoy your answering of this prayer as we look to your word. And so we want to thank you in advance. Thank you for answering this prayer and helping us become better readers of your scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's just begin with a little a quick review of where we've been. The last couple of weeks, uh, I hope you're having as much fun as I am. If you're having half as much fun as, as I've been having, then you've probably been having a lot of fun. I really enjoy this discussion, and as I've talked to several of you, it's really easy to boast in God's ability to speak. That's just a lot of fun, because we serve an amazing God, and the fact that he spoke to us so clearly is so incredibly encouraging. And this is the foundation for all that we do, to be able to stand firm against the world, to stand firm against temptation, and to be able to serve in the church. It all stands on God's clear speech. So we started this series... Um, did God really say? And we started it by looking at Satan's attack on God's speech in Genesis 3. And then I gave you um, three plausible attacks on God's speech. And these are the kind of attacks that you hear today from maybe extended family or coworkers. And so this is what we looked at the last couple of weeks. Um, number one, personal circumstance prevents a proper reading. And we looked at how the scripture actually does not believe that. The scriptures actually presuppose that, you know what? God's speech is clear enough and powerful enough to overcome my tradition, my circumstance, 
my situatedness, all the traditions that I bring to the table with all of who I am. It can overcome those things. So certainly we can be guilty of reading something into the scriptures, but that's not necessary. Number two, you often hear the complaint that differing interpretations disprove the scriptures' clarity. I mean, if the scriptures were really that clear, then why do people disagree? And we saw that the Bible has a clear answer for that. And in fact, this Bible presupposes that it will be misunderstood and deliberately misinterpreted because it's loaded with hundreds of passages to Christians about how to stand firm against false interpretation. And that's why we contend for the faith, and that's why elders have to be able to refute those who contradict the sound doctrine of God's word. But it also explains that there's going to be differences in interpretation because we're all on a process of sanctification, and we're all growing into Christ's likeness. And so at times, and in certain texts, we may have blind spots because of where we're at in our own sanctification and our own growth that might prevent us from seeing a text of Scripture rightly, which is why interpreting the Scripture in the context of the church is so important. Um, number three, you're going to hear a lot of people say, well, you sound pretty certain about your interpretation, and certainty is pride. And doesn't your Bible teach that humility is a virtue? I don't want to hear what you're saying so confidently. Well, that's an interesting attack, isn't it? It's, uh, it's what the world's always said, that uh, certainty is pride and uh, doubt is humility. When the scriptures say the exact opposite, and um, we talked about that last week, um, and in case uh, I don't believe I got there, one of my favorite texts on that, and this is the only one I'm going to go back and just do a little bit of dive back into where we were, just in case I didn't spend enough time on that third point, make sure that you mark down Psalm 119, verse 21. This is one of those verses that in my mind, just in very quick fashion, exposes the lie of this, of this attack. Uh, when you hear somebody say, Certainty equals pride, doubt equals humility. Reinforce your mind and renew your mind with Psalm 119, verse 21. The psalmist writes this, You rebuke the arrogant, comma, the cursed. Okay, so the psalmist is calling the arrogant person somebody who is cursed, and then it describes them. Listen to how it describes the arrogant person who is certain and clear about what God said. <laughs> oh, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Sorry, I misread. Look at, verse, look at 21b. Who wander away from your commandments. The arrogant are the people who wander away from God's commandments. They are cursed. They're so arrogant to say, I don't know what God, I'm not going to do what God says, or I don't know what God says, or you can't be confident about what God says. And so God gives a very clear command, and they wander away from it. No matter how they got there, they are arrogant because they wandered away from God's commandments. And then along comes a humble Christian who says, I know what God's commanded, and I must do that. Oh, that's pride. Well, not according to Psalm 1921. The person who wanders away from what God says is proud. The person who humbly comes under what God says and says, yeah, that's what God said. That's where I'm standing. That's humility. And so this really is, these, these arguments need to be exposed. And, and as I mentioned last week, this is really where the attack becomes very, very subtly satanic. Because as soon as we go to the scriptures and have answers for these attacks, the answer takes on a whole nother level of subterfuge and subtlety 
Because at that point, the unbeliever can say, well, all you're doing is just going back to the scripture and continuing to misinterpret it and give me more of your own personally subjective meaning in trying to refute what I'm saying. And so we're going to break things down just to the very basic foundation level of how do we really think about interpretation? Can we know for sure that when we read the Bible, we can, we can conclude, thus saith the Lord, that we can actually answer the satanic attack that says, did God really say? And so we want to have confidence and, and certainty. And so the answer really comes, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time in this series, is these next two points. So biblical hermeneutics, there is a biblical hermeneutic. There's a way to interpret that actually comes from God. It's outside of you, it's outside of me, and it's verifiable, and we can all go to Scripture and get a biblical hermeneutic. It is absolutely possible. And this is really the the two points. The next couple of weeks, we're going to look at this. The Bible presupposes a hermeneutic. The Bible really, it expects some things to be in place for you to make sense of it in the first place. And you say, well, that's not really much of an argument. Well, you know what's really ironic about that first point? We're going to see how not only does the Bible presuppose a lot about interpretation, so do every communicator who uses human language, so does every critic of the Scripture, so does every Christian who defends the Scripture. They all use the same presuppositions. Then the second point, which we're going to look at in the the last four weeks of this series, is the Bible practices a hermeneutic. And so we're going to look at some of the, you know, as I've studied this, I've I've seen the Bible is 100% consistent. It always interprets itself in the same way. It always interprets itself according to its own presuppositions about language and interpretation and meaning. Every single time, without fail. That's a big claim, I realize, because there's texts that probably come to mind. You think, well, it seems like one apostle does something weird with the Old Testament and didn't make sense. And so we're going to look at some of those problem passages, but that's absolutely true. Every time the New Testament interprets the Old, it interprets it according to the presuppositions that it, the Bible has about interpretation. So that's kind of a heading to where we're going, and now let me give you an outline for the next couple of weeks. On this next slide, um, basically I'm just going to give you what the Bible really presupposes about hermeneutics. So language, meaning, and interpretation. These are the three big things we need to think about. And uh, I want to try to just take our time and look at Scripture and think clearly about this so that we can walk away with confidence. So language, we started this last week at the very end, and so that's why we were talking about uh, the ungodly theories about where we got language, where did mankind come up with language, and you take God out of the equation and people come up with the most ridiculous answers as we saw last week. You go to Scripture, and Scripture just starts, as I said, Genesis 1.1. And there's nothing in Genesis 1-1 about hermeneutics. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what? The Bible presupposes that when God speaks in human language, the human reader is going to be able to make sense of it and understand what he's talking about. The Bible presupposes quite a bit about language. In fact, here's here's kind of my, my summary of what the Bible presupposes about language. Language is an innate ability of God. It's, in other words, it's just part of his nature. He's always had that ability. It's just who he is, a speaking God. And it's given to man when God created him in his own image. So grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis 1, and we're going to look at what the Bible says about man's language ability. So we've already seen in Genesis, I'm sorry, did I say Genesis 1? I hope I did. 
We already looked at Genesis 1-1. The Bible just presupposes it on every page of Scripture, starting with Genesis 1-1, it presupposes that reality. And we're going to look at even some of what it explains about how we got that ability. And as you're turning there to Genesis 1, let me just give you a quick illustration about how intuitive our use of language really is. You know, we talk about intu- something that's intuitive, right? Uh, we talk about like, like a, which, which phone is more intuitive, the iPhone or the Samsung? I'm not really interested in your opinion. Um, <laughs> that's not the point. That's just the illustration. We talk about that, right? It's intuitive. It doesn't require a, a manual. And I would disprove that either one are intuitive. I can make ever, anything not intuitive if it involves technological savvy, as the booth has learned over the, me give, trying to give them my PowerPoints. So intuitive means it doesn't require any explanation. It's just self-evident. It's intuitive. Language is intuitive, isn't it? You might think, well, I've tried to learn a foreign language, and it wasn't intuitive. Well, sure. But a language that you grew up speaking, you have an innate ability to learn language, and your use of a language that you uh, know is very intuitive. And let me, let me give you an example uh, of how language works. Let's suppose you came over to the Anderson household, and you heard me talking to my boys, but you couldn't make out what I was saying. And so you're kind of, you're walking down a hallway, and you're like, oh, where, where's the family? I hear, I hear somebody talking, and I can't, I can't make out what they're saying. And then you walk past a doorway, and I'm in there talking to the boys. And as, I, as you pass the hallway, and my voice is clearly hitting your ear, coming out the door, all you can hear is the end of a conversation, and you hear me say, he was on fire. Okay, let's break that down. What does that mean? He, masculine pronoun, was, a state of verb in the past tense. On fire, adverbial preposition. Now, you don't, you don't think about that. You're not thinking, you're not processing, you know, grammatical tags as I'm just talking. You're thinking, he's on fire. What's he talking about? What is that? Why isn't that intuitive, John? I thought you said language was intuitive. Well, let's say you stood at the doorway for the whole story and you realized that the boys had just asked me about some sports game and I was talking about their favorite basketball player and I was saying, he was on fire. And that response, the response to that would be fist pumps. and Yeah! That has immediate connotation in your mind and you know exactly what that means as opposed to what if you heard the phrase, he was on fire and there's tears in my boy's eyes. And that requires a previous story about a favorite martyr from the English Reformation who died for the faith and was faithful to the end. If I told the story of John Hooper who died in Gloucestershire in the 1550s because he would not compromise on the doctrine of Christ's atonement. And I said, he was on fire. Totally different meaning, isn't it? Or, if the response was just totally neutral, and then you find out later, oh, one of the boys had asked, hey, how's, how's our brother doing? And like, oh, he's got a really bad fever. He was on fire. And they're like, hmm. You think, well, these boys don't care about their brothers, do they? <laughs> no, but the point being, regardless of the context, you, you know the meaning's just intuitive. You, don't even have to, you hardly have to process anything But the critical component there is context. Context, context, context. Why is it that when we are aware of the context, language is so intuitive to mankind? Answer, 
because God gave us an innate language ability. Let's dive into Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Moses records that God said, quote, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, it's interesting. What happens here is that this really becomes the first instance of God speaking with plurality. This happens several times, it happens in Genesis 1, it happens in Genesis 3, it happens in Genesis 11, and God speaks with plurality. Here it's interesting that the, the pronoun is plural, let us make man in our image, the verb is plural, and the pronoun modifying our image and our likeness, both of those pronouns are plural. So you have plurality all the way through. God is speaking here interpersonally. It's interpersonal divine communication. This isn't something that God developed. He always had it. We saw him speaking in Genesis 1-3, speaking to something that didn't exist, that then began to exist and obeyed his voice. Now we see him speaking between divine persons, and you have divine personhood conveying meaning to another divine person. That's fascinating. So for eternity past, God had the ability among interpersonal relationship to be able to convey meaning one to another. He's always had that ability. And here he's having a deliberation. He's just he's speaking one person to another person and they're collectively saying, okay, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. What does it explicitly mention here about God's being made in God's image? There's a couple things that are explicit. First of all, it has to do with dominion. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the first and most obvious description of um, being created in God's image is dominion. There's a dominion aspect involved in being created in the image of God. And we don't have time to develop this, but it's really, really fun to think about what's so profound about Christ's redemptive purpose that he is going to be for eternity future, not just God, but also man, and that he's going to rule on earth over a cursed creation, reversing that curse and establishing dominion for the first time since Adam lost it. And we are being conformed into the image of Christ's likeness. So that's pretty profound. But all we're doing at this point is just simply documenting that being created in God's image has to do with dominion. Secondly, it has to do with um, a relationship. Look at verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And it's interesting. Moses makes explicit documentation that being created in the image of, of God has to do with this relationship. There's relationship involved here. 
Now, he doesn't say anything about man's language ability explicitly, and I don't think that language ability is explicitly what the meaning of being created in the image of God is, but it is inevitably an ability that man must have to carry out those two functions. And I want to be careful about that because, you know, other creatures like angels also have language ability. But it certainly sets apart man from animals. Animals don't have language ability. And look at these two functions. Dominion. How can man exert dominion without language ability? What happens when God gives Adam dominion over the creation? He starts parading all of the animals in front of him, and Adam starts naming them. He's the one with authority to determine the names of all of the animals that God created. And then he sees his wife and says, Whoa, man. Wow. <laughs> That's not really the etymology. I thought you'd appreciate that. Um, anyway, uh, he, he, says, he calls her woman, and there's an element of authority even in the naming function. The second function of being created in the image of God this interpersonal human relationship, imagine how well that goes without speech. I mean, you can't even have a relationship without speech. It's really, really challenging. And so here, God creates man in his image, and he models for us interpersonal communication, and then you start to see man responding back to God in Genesis 2. You see man talking to man. Uh, um, um, you see God, God to God in Genesis 1. You see God to man in Genesis 2. You see man speaking back to God in Genesis 2 and man to man in Genesis 3. And so you start seeing this communication ability, this derivative of being created in the image of God. That's where it came from. I do want to just make a comment here. Um, it's really interesting thinking about language and being created in the image of God. When you get to the New Testament, have you ever noticed how the there's so much emphasis on being conformed to Christ's likeness and the redemption of our speech. Let me give you two texts that make the connection between our use of language and being conformed back into the image of God via the image of Christ that makes explicit implications for our speech. Look at Colossians 3 for a second. This is fascinating. I just found this so interesting. Um, Paul and Colossians, and we'll also look at James 3, both make it, make it very explicit the impact of being conformed in Christ's image and how it will redeem our speech. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And um, if you're reading in NAS, that's what I have here. The, the margin is really, really good. Literally, put to death the members which are upon the earth. Or even maybe more literally, just kill the members Kill the earthly members. So put them to death. Kill them. The, the practice of our carnal life needs to be killed, and that can only be killed virtue, by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. And so walking with Christ is the only way to put these things to death. Verse 6 explains it's because of these things that the wrath of God will, uh, comes upon the sons of disobedience. In them you also once walked when you were living in them. Christians used to be living according to the course of this world, and we walked in our fallen ways. And we all, who are truly saved, remember what our speech was like. And I'm not just talking about curse words versus clean words. I'm talking about God-honoring motives to use our speech versus self-serving motives in the use of our speech. So verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge, watch this, according to the image of the one who created him. We are being renewed into the image of Christ who created us. So our speech ought to reflect that. Speech, by its very nature, has to do with being created in the image of God. And so we didn't lose the image of God when we fell into sin, and we didn't lose our speech ability when we fell into sin. What happens is sin affects our language ability, and it mars the image of God in which we were created. So let me show you one last text that makes that connection. James 3 does the same thing as well. James 3, it's interesting here, you have an explicit statement about man being created in the image of God and just how ironic it would be that man created in the image of God would ever use speech in an ungodly way. Let's pick it up in verse 8, James 3, verse 8. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Notice, mankind has been created in the image of God. So this is post-fall. Even though man fell, he still is created in the image of God, and our fellow man is created in the image of God. And he's making the point that it would be really, really ironic, verse... um, Nine, 10, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. He's saying how ironic that you, have, you would profess with your lips one thing about how devoted to God you are with your speech and then you would tear down mankind with your speech. That is just tragically hypocritical. We are created in the image of God. Our speech ought to reflect that. That's James' point there. But I just wanted to point out how sweet it is that the New Testament comes along and just continues operating on that presupposition. You're created in the image of God. You have a speech ability. And even though it was affected, not only your image of God, your image bearing, but also your speech ability was affected by the fall, being renewed into Christ's image also redeems your speech and the God-honoring motives for which you can use your speech. So, it's very clear in Genesis, we could, we could keep tracing that out, and I, I won't trace it out any more than just one text. Go back to Genesis, and let me show you the next time that um, God talks about the image of God, and, and it's clear that it's, it has to do with um, relationship, and even explicitly with gender here. This is fascinating, not because it's saying that God has gender, but there's interpersonal relationship, uh, especially between a man and a wife. In Genesis chapter 5, Verse 1, it refers back to the text that we just read in Genesis 1. This is the book of generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them, uh, named them man in the day when they were created. So God created man and named them man. There's dominion. And a speech act connected to dominion. I'm going to name man, man. He gives that dominion to Adam. Adam names the animal. There's an act that shows dominion as well. And then look at what happens here. Um, Verse 3. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So God creates man in his image and gives him dominion. Adam falls, and then he sires a son named Seth, who now is in the image of Adam, which has also fallen. It's fascinating. But you can see that there's something being passed on in this um, image-bearing uh, that was given in a pure fashion when God created man, and now in an impure fashion when fallen man continues to procreate. And guess what? Seth's speech ability is also affected. So it's very clear that the dominion, uh, the, I'm sorry, that the image of God has to do with dominion and relationship, and it's implicit that speech is the inability necessary for both of those functions that are connected to our image bearing. And that's, you can trace that out throughout Scripture in many implicit texts. What's the point here for interpretation? I've heard a lot of times I hear people say in a kind of a critical fashion, it's like, well, you know, God did speak to us in human language. I mean, you know, what was he really doing anyway? I mean, if God just gave us a zip file that was unmediated through human language, I mean, if he just, you know, showed up in my bedroom in the middle of the night and just I saw the Shekinah glory and there was just like this like transfusion of meaning without human language that would be awesome and then I'd have clarity and you start looking at the Bible and you realize no no there's nothing lacking in human language God didn't make a mistake to communicate to us in human language so there's a principle here that I want to draw out just from what we've seen and um, in uh, Genesis here. Keep going to the next slide. Uh, keep going. Nope, I kind, of, I kind of forgot I had these on PowerPoint here. <laughs> it's okay, we'll pause right there. So this is what you see basically from what I showed you in Genesis 1 and Genesis 5, uh, all the way through Genesis 5. Divine person to divine person, that's the first act of interpersonal communication. And then the second act would be God to man, then man to God, finally man to man. That's a derivative of us being created in the image of God. Now, next slide. This is kind of where I'm going with this. When God seeks to convey meaning to man, human language is a perfectly suited tool to do so. This is not second rate. It's not as though we come to our Bibles and we're like, ah, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad, he, I'm glad he spoke to us. I wish it could have been a better format. Don't think that. I mean, we have a perfectly suited medium for us to know the heart and mind of our God. He communicated to us clearly in human language. That was not the second or third or fourth or fifth best option. It was perfect. There's nothing lacking. We don't lack anything that we have God's heart and mind in human language. It's perfectly suited to convey his heart and mind to us. And so I just want to build on that for a second. And we could trace this out, and I want to make sure I'm, I'm very conscious of the time, but I want to just show you a few. I mean, we could go to a hundred passages. I don't believe I'm exaggerating to say a hundred passages. I didn't write down a hundred passages, and I didn't put them in PowerPoint, but I don't believe I'm over, overestimating when I say that we could go to a hundred passages and start showing God is not apologetic about speaking to us in human language. But let me just show you a few that kind of connect God's confidence in the revelation that he gave us explicitly in human language. I found this absolutely fascinating. Well, where else do you go to answer that question but Leviticus? You knew I was going there, right? 
I read Leviticus uh, in, in trying to answer this question, and I'm like, well, I might as well just skip Leviticus. I mean, we know that's all about sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And, oh, and then it just blew me away. Who knew that God was going to answer that question so clearly in the book of Leviticus? Let's pick it up in Leviticus chapter 8. God, it make, he makes it so clear that he is not apologizing. He, he is not embarrassed that he spoke to his people in human language. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. This is a simple statement that probably could you find about a thousand times over in the Old Testament. Then the Lord spoke. He speaks to Moses. He speaks directly. And then he gives the content in the quote, verses 2 and 3. And then look at verse 4. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. So he does exactly what God spoke to him. God spoke to him, and Moses could act in a way that was faithful to the meaning of that speech in human language. It was clear, and God is able to tell us that not, not only was it clear, it was so clear to Moses that Moses was actually able to do exactly what God wanted him to do, so he could conform his actions to God's clear speech. But now, look at what happens here, and I'm going to start reading a refrain, and so I'm just going to give you some verse numbers. This is going to require you to kind of stay on your feet here for a second. So keep your Bible open, and we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm limiting this to Leviticus 8 through 10, and I'm going to show you a refrain in Leviticus 8 to 10. And as I keep reading these phrases, just try to keep a, a, a tally in your head or try to remember when you hear a new phrase that's different from the previous refrain. Because you're going to hear about three to four variations on the same refrain. Okay, you ready for this? Verse 5. At the end of verse 5, notice what it says. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Look at verse 9. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 13. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 17. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 29. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 31. Moses is speaking just as I commanded. That one's different. Verse 35. Moses is still speaking. For so I have been commanded. Verse 36. Moses commenting as the author, which the Lord had commanded through Moses. That one's different. Yeah, let's keep going. Chapter 9. Verse 7, just as the Lord has commanded. Verse 10, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Chapter 9, verse 21, just as Moses had commanded. That's different. Chapter 10, verse 1, which he had not commanded. Verse 5, as Moses had said. Verse 7. So they did according to the word of Moses. Verse 11. Which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses. Verse 13. For thus I have been commanded. <laughs> Verse 15. Just as the Lord commanded. Verse 18, Moses speaking, just as I commanded. 
you get to the end of that section and you kind of you ask the question, well, wait a minute. Who's doing the commanding here? God or Moses? Who's speaking? God or Moses? Yes. Yes. God can command. Moses can command under inspiration. God can command through Moses, and Moses can passively be commanded. All are equivalent, and God is not apologizing. He's not blushing, saying, oh, I did it through human language. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. He said, I gave you clear revelation. I spoke to you in human language. He's boasting in it because he created us with human language ability, and he's rejoicing in the clarity that he gives us. And then people come along and say, oh, he spoke to us in human language. It's not clear. Well, pick a medium that is clear. I mean, this is the, this is the receptor that he gave us. It's like God gave us an, a, a radio antenna, and, it's tra- and he's transmitting on FM, and he gave us an FM tra- trans, uh, a receiver, and, he's sitting, and then the critic comes along and says, oh, God spoke in human language. It's not clear. And he's telling us to turn it to AM. And it's like, okay, good luck with that. God created us with the receptor to understand him speaking in human language. And God comes along and he brags about it and boasts in it and does not apologize about it. We ought not to blush that we know the heart and mind of our God through the human language he gave us. Isn't that sweet? I mean, this just encourages us. This gives us such confidence. When you open your Bible in the morning and you say, do I really know the heart and mind of the creator of the universe? I am, after all, reading human language. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Let me give you just a couple more. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 20. Context here is Jehoshaphat is the king. The enemy is coming against the nation. They're concerned what do they do? Do they fight? Are they going to? Well, Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord's face and he prays and God tells them to go and fight, that you won't have to fight. God's going to take care of it for you, so just trust me. And listen to what happens. Verse 20. They rose early in the morning and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. Wow. That sounds like two different messages. Which one is it, Jehoshaphat? Do we trust in the Lord, or do we trust in his prophets? Yes. Yes. I mean, there's an absolute equal sign between God's prophets and God. God is unapologetic that he speaks through human language in these prophets. He's absolutely, absolutely rejoicing in that. Let me give you another example, and this one's a little bit different. Look at, he- look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. Notice what the author to Hebrews does, and I'm, just, I'm trying to give you a variety of types of evidences of this in the Scripture. Here's an example where a New Testament um, author quotes the Old Testament... And notice who's speaking in chapter 3, verse 7. He's quoting Psalm 95. And so he says in verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, 
And then he proceeds to quote Psalm 95 and ascribes the speech to the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is speaking in Psalm 95. Then you go to chapter forward in chapter 4, verse 7. He's still giving commentary on Psalm 95. And here he says, he again fixes a certain day, namely today, which he referenced in Psalm 95. Today means any day that you hear God speaking. Today, saying through David, after so long a time as they, have, as they had been said before, as had been said before, excuse me. And then he goes on to quote the psalm again. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So in verse 7 of chapter 3, the Holy Spirit's speaking. In verse 7 of chapter 4, God is speaking through David, and he doesn't blush. Absolutely the same. God is speaking through human language. The human language of the scripture is perfectly suited for God to speak clearly to man. So today, you might hear some Christians think, boy, to really, to really get after Bible interpretation, you know, when you read your Bible, you've got to get beyond the text. You know, we don't want to put God in a box of human language. We don't want to limit him. So you've got to get beyond the text and really get the mind and heart of God the beyond the text. No, we don't put God in a box. Fortunately, God puts himself in a box because if he didn't put himself in a box, we, wouldn't, we couldn't know him. So he puts himself in the box of communicating to us clearly in human language. We're not putting him in a box. We are approaching him in the only way we could know him, which is how he has revealed himself. And we're coming to him, and we should not be asking, and I have this on the slide here, the, the hermeneutical question when we read the Bible is not, what is in God's mind beyond the language of the text? What is God's mind in the language of the text? That's the only way we can know God's heart and mind, is in the language of the text. And so, now we're at this moment where some of you are sitting there saying, this is awesome, and some of you feel like a balloon just got burst. And some of you are feeling both at the same time. Because what happened? I'm kind of demystifying hermeneutics. There's, really no, there's no special secret key. You know, if you came into the series and you're thinking, oh, this is great. I've always struggled to interpret the Bible, and he's going to give us this little pill to swallow. And once I swallow that pill, man, interpretation is just, like, it's just automatic, and it's just easy. And so I'm kind of popping that. There's no secret little key. There's no decoder ring. There's no you know, silver bullet that just you know, cuts through all of the clutter and just cleans it up for you. And it's like, oh, I was kind of hoping for that. But at the same time, it should be increasing your confidence in your ability to know the mind and heart of the creator of the universe because he's communicated to you in human language. And that's not, that's not a problem. That is a blessing. And so if it encourages you and gives you confidence in why you should read the scripture and pay attention to every word, then, that, then we've done our job. So the Bible presupposes from Genesis 1.1, it just presupposes that human language is adequate for conveying meaning from God's heart and mind to ours. Let's look at a second presupposition. We'll start this, and we'll have to end with this. We'll see how far we get. Second presupposition has to do with meaning. Meaning. I don't know if we have that. I'm sorry if I don't have that, the, the full one there. But remember, the, the outline for this week and next is biblical presuppositions about language, meaning, and interpretation. Interpretation will be next week, and we'll, but we'll start meaning right now. What does the Bible presuppose about meaning? Meaning. 
Meaning is singular and it's determined by the author speaker. Meaning is singular and it's determined by the author speaker. The scriptures presuppose that. Now, we could go to so many places. And I'll just actually allude to one text that we already looked at. If you remember, we saw that when God spoke to Moses, Moses acted according to all that God said. Isn't that an interesting statement when you think about what's happening there? God spoke, so there's human language given to Moses, and now Moses' actions accord with what God said. That's a statement about meaning. That's a statement about meaning. That means that Moses' actions were faithful. They faithfully correlated and conformed to God's speech. So, Moses understood the meaning and then acted accordingly, and God praised him for it. If Moses hadn't acted accordingly, he would have had consequences for it. And so you can see that um, meaning is, this is what we're gonna, I'm going to show you here, is that meaning is determined by the author. If we do what God intended, we are faithful. If we don't do what God intended, we are disobedient. And the scriptures presuppose this really, literally on every single page. But let me just give you, we're just going to park in Jeremiah because there's so many things happening in Jeremiah that really help us to understand this in a clear fashion. So turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah. We'll start here. We'll see how far we get. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's going to speak God's word to God's people. But unlike Moses, he's not a prototypical prophet. He's actually a post-Torah prophet. So he's actually giving prophecy and exhortation to the people of God who already have a scripture, which is fascinating because that means that Moses' messages at times will have information that is prophetic in the sense that they've never been revealed before, and it's forth-telling future things before they occur. At other times, he's giving inspired commentary on the meaning of the Torah that Moses has already revealed. God, when he calls Jeremiah to be a prophet, is going to examine Jeremiah, and he's going to see, is Jeremiah's message going to be faithful to what I tell him to say? In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses um, 4 through 10, you see his calling, and Jeremiah is scared, and he's concerned. The Lord kind of rebukes him in verse 7, don't say, I'm a youth, I'm going to strengthen you, don't be afraid of all the enemies. Um, verse 9b says, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. Verse 11, The word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the, word, then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And then he said again, the second time, What do you see? Jeremiah said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And he goes on then to give a prophecy, but he put that out there to say, Jeremiah, what do you see? I want to hear you articulate what I'm revealing to you. And he articulated something that was completely faithful with what God was revealing him. Moses is checking, did you get the meaning right? I mean, sorry, God is is checking Jeremiah, are you getting the meaning that God intended? God's intending meaning here. Now watch what happens. Jeremiah chapter 19. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 19. Look what happens here. This is fascinating. In Jeremiah 19, God is continuing to reveal truth through Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah is giving the word of the Lord to the nation. And um, he's re- this is a rebuke to the nation. 
And listen to what he says about the people of Israel. Verse 4. Because they have forsaken me, and they have made this an alien place, and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded, I never spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. This is not a statement about a lack of omniscience. God does not lack omniscience. Clearly, he has in his mind every act and deed done past, present, and future, and he has in his mind every contingent act and thought that could have been and would have been if things had been differently. He lacks no knowledge in that category. This is a statement about intentionality in his speech. Notice in verse 5, he's rebuking them because they are carrying out practices that have been uh, syncretistic. They've combined what God said with unbelief and pagan practice. And so now they are left with this syncretistic idolatry, and God's sitting there saying, you haven't done what I said. What you're practicing is not faithful with what I commanded, what I spoke, and it was never even entered into my mind. That wasn't my intention when I spoke, and my speech was clear, and it accurately re- revealed and portrayed my mind. By the way, we should just say this. And I know we'd be getting ahead of ourselves to sit here and talk about all the implications of the fall on human communication. Because when it comes to two sinners, maybe you think of in marriage, two sinners in marriage communicating, there's sin by way on the, on the part of the speaker, and there's sin on the way of the, of the listener, and sin, communication gets pretty complicated pretty quick. Well, guess what? We can simplify it when God is speaking. There's no degeneration in the ability to speak because he is sinless, perfect, and holy, with an innate ability to use language. So when there is a breakdown of communication between God and man, the fault is always on the half of man. And so here he's saying in verse 5, this was not my command, it was not my speech, it wasn't even in my mind. When I, what I, it had nothing to do with what I was intending as I spoke to you. Okay, we got time for a couple more, and then we'll have to wrap it up. Look, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. And notice what this shows us here about the singularity of meaning and the meaning being determined by the author or the speaker. Jeremiah 23 is probably one of my favorite, it has to be one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, It's just so profound uh, because it's, it's so critical to the nature of God's word and the benefit of it for man. But let's just pick it up in... Verse 28, Jeremiah 23, verse 28. We're we're skipping a lot, um, but we're in a context where Jeremiah is rebuking the false prophets who have been confusing the the truth by speaking their own dream, their own imagination. And so he even, they, they even say, like in verse 25, I had a dream, I had a dream. So mankind is sitting there speaking forth what we created and confusing that with what God actually spoke. So some, somebody has a dream and they say, oh, that's a good message, I'll, 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 I'll talk about that. Here's the word of the Lord. And God's sitting there saying, excuse me, can you stop putting words in my mouth? And so the false teachers are being rebuked for putting words in God's mouth. So verse 28, 
prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord. Notice what's happening here. Prophets could at least point to the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and at least point to God's revelation and say, okay, let me read a passage and let me make a comment about it. And then they add their own meaning, as we've already seen from Jeremiah chapter 8. They pervert the meaning of God's word with their own lying pen, their own lying commentary. It's deceitful because they don't get it right. Here, he just says, these two don't work. They don't fit. They're not compatible. The meaning that I intended with my word is not compatible with a reader coming along and coming up with his own meaning. What does straw have in common with grain? Only one benefits the eater. I mean, grain, it's got something to it. That's going to nourish you. Straw is like eating paper. No benefit. And these people come with reader response hermeneutics. Meaning gets to be determined by me because I'm the reader. It means what, I, what it means to me. No, that's straw. What does that have to do with grain? Your meaning that you imposed on God's word is incompatible with God's intended meaning. God intended one thing, and nobody has the right to say, no, this is what he meant, because I think he meant this. Mankind cannot come along and say, on the basis of my own personal authority, this is what God meant. God has the right to say what he meant. And when man comes along and imposes his meaning on top of what God said, it's incompatible. So you see on the slide there, subjectivism doesn't mix with divine revelation. Subjectivism does not mix with divine revelation. They're incompatible. I can't come up with my own reading. I don't get to determine the meaning. I can't come up with a second meaning. There's not multiple meanings. This isn't choose your own adventure. This isn't any of those things. And Israel is rebuked. Isn't it funny that all the hermeneutical issues that we face today were right there in Israel back in the 7th century B.C.? Isn't that fascinating? Satan's still saying, did God really say? I mean, there's only a, there's only a, in, there's only a finite number of, of ways to assault the truth, and they just keep cycling through. And so here you see some of those same hermeneutical critiques. The Bible presupposes that meaning is singular and determined by the author. All right, well, the next one's going to take some time. You can see there Jeremiah 31. Uh, that's an instance where Jeremiah makes some commentary on the Ten Commandments. And so we'll look at that one. That's where we'll pick it up next week. But uh, this is just, so far, we're, we're looking at uh, what the Bible presupposes about language and meanings. Next time we'll finish that, Lord willing, and then pick up what it means about, what it presupposes about interpretation. So let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word, and again, it's just a privilege to study it, and I pray that this would refine our ability to interpret your word. In your name we pray. Amen.